You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. It's a real pleasure to see you all here today. Uh, if I could take this opportunity to remind you to shut off your cell phones and that sort of thing so we're not interrupted and so it doesn't interfere with the recording that we're doing for the, uh, for the podcast version of this. Uh, we're extremely fortunate today to have with us uh, Ms. Nada Prouty, the author of Uncompromised, the Rise, Fall, and Redemption of an Arab-American Patriot of the CIA. Nada was born in Lebanon, but took the opportunity as a young woman to come to the United States. Unfortunately, in the process of doing so, she committed, a, I think, a youthful mistake. She'll probably tell us about that today. Uh, later, when she applied to work for the FBI, something she didn't have to do, uh, she told them all about it and got a job and a clearance anyway. That mistake would later come back to haunt her, after serving selflessly overseas um, for the Bureau, she later moved to the CIA. But soon, uh, however, she descended into a security nightmare as her former employers somehow came to the conclusion she'd been spying for Hezbollah. Never mind that the case was flimsy, dependent in part on the youthful mistake which she'd already had investigated, and that she wasn't a Muslim. She'll tell us all about this, I'm sure. Uh, Nada Proudy fits into a broader context, I think, of immigrants who come to work in the United States intelligence community. 
one of the tremendous advantages in national security terms that the United States has is that we attract immigrants from literally all over the world who are able to provide us uh, uh, cultural, political uh, insights and who are able to use their native language skills to benefit our country. Uh, the United States intelligence community, of course, realizes that we should take advantage of this tremendous resource, but at the same time, it's very, very nervous about security and has never really, I think, figured out how to strike that balance. Um, unfortunately, a, a few of the immigrants who've come to serve in the intelligence community have become spies. One thinks of Franz Neumann, who spied for the Soviets uh, from inside the OSS and uh, then briefly worked at the State Department's intelligence branch. He was actually never detected. There was also, of course, Igor Orlov, who spied from inside the CIA during the 1950s. He was detected but never prosecuted. However, the vast, vast majority of immigrants who've come to work for the intelligence community, or for that matter, the U.S. government generally, have not been spies. Yet a number of them have been put through the security ringer and had their careers destroyed. And unfortunately, NADA is uh, one of them. Uh, many people would argue, I think, in fact, that the intelligence community needs to work harder to bring more immigrants into the business. Not a story suggests the intelligence community needs to think long and hard about how it handles immigrants and where the greatest national cost is as it sets that uh, balance uh, regarding security. As I read this book, I couldn't help but find it uh, uh, alternately infuriating and depressing, but either way, it's a gripping read, and I think it gives us a really good sense of a woman who kept her faith in America despite having many reasons not to. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Nada Prouty. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how many of you have read the book, but I figured I'll start with a little bit of an overview of the book. I opened up the book in, uh, in a mission in 2003 in Baghdad. It was a, a grueling time for the intelligence community, and I was asked to get out of the green zone, collect some intelligence, and bring it back. The intelligence was obviously very important. At the time, the mission had changed. Initially, when we went to Baghdad, the mission was to uh, find the weapons of mass destruction and also flush the relationship between al-Qaeda and the Saddam regime. So um, that changed immediately, but as uh, case officers, you also adjust with the change in the mission. So I had uh, gotten ready to go outside of the green zone because I got a call from a contact who had information about possible attacks on our U.S. men and women in uniform. Uh, so I got ready, I had my Glock, I had my Colt Commando machine gun, I put on my Abaya, and I drove within the green zone into a place where we pick up junker cars, because you don't want to get out in, outside of the green zone to a place um, with a, an SUV, because you can immediately be, be identified as an American. So anyways, I go out, I collect the intelligence, and I'm rushing back to go inside the green zone so I can write up my reports. And um, my car, breaks down right at the entrance of the green zone. At that time, people would line up, the Iraqis would line up, and they needed uh, permission to enter into the green zone, and they would all line up, and we would be ushered by a Marine to uh, be allowed entry into the green zone. So my car had broken down, and I kept ushering the Iraqis to pass, uh, you know, to pass through. After all the Iraqis had gone, 
uh, it was getting do later and darker, I had called for help and I've told them that my car had broken down. So um, I see the Marine and he was approaching me slowly but surely and he's looking at me and, and not sure why is that car, the car looks suspicious and by my own assessment the car looks suspicious. So um, he uh, starts walking closer and closer and closer and I thought, oh gee, I, I gotta tell him, uh, you know, uh, who I am, let me grab my badge. So I roll down the window and I start saying, I'm American, I'm American. And he's looking at me and, uh, you know, if, in case you haven't noticed, I do have an accent. And he's like not 100% sure about me. So I, I said, okay, let me grab my badge. But I had my bulletproof vest, and I was pregnant also at the time. And I'm trying to grab, and I have my uh, automatic weapon. And I'm trying to open up my abaya, grab my badge. So what is he thinking? He's thinking it exactly. Showtime. I'm going to blow the car up. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill myself. And uh, so he, he puts his finger on the trigger and, and puts his weapon right in my face. And I kept saying, no, I'm American. I'm American. I'm coming out from the green zone. And I had both my hands up. And I said, I, I want to grab my, um, I, I wanna grab my uh, badge. I'll show you. I'll show you my badge. And he, he, he was sweating. I was drenched in sweat, uh, completely and totally sweat. So I grab my badge, I show it to him, he lowers his weapon, and he allows me entry into the green zone. Um, this was in 2003, and this, this is one of the cases or one of the missions that I had worked for the CIA. And now I'm gonna rewind you to where I was born. Um, I was born in Lebanon, as many of you know, a country torn by civil war. And I was also born to an abusive parent who, uh, you know, did not think that the boys and girls were an equal uh, standard. As an example, my brother ate a certain type of food and we ate another type of food. Um, or my brother wore a certain type of clothing and we wore secondhand clothing. So, um, the, you know, there are a lot of stories of children who had grown up in war. And I'll share one of the stories with you and I, and I have a number of other stories in the book. Um, I remember uh, when we would get bombed in Beirut, one of the things that um, you would do, and it was normal, I just didn't know that it, it occurred differently in other countries, but one of the things that you would do, you start grabbing your stuff. The bombing is happening, and you're getting ready, trying to head to the shelter. So you grab your pillow, a book, whatever it is that you do. It was a normal part of life. And uh, we went to the shelter, and I'd always hear people talk about the war, and it was amazing with their, uh, it, with their imagination of what they would say. And as a child, just looking and listening to them, I was really amazed by this. Um, so one, one time in this, I call it the war corner, uh, I was listening to this person talk about bombs that knew the name of their target, or bombs that only exploded when their target said certain words. And you know, I was a very impressionable young person. And, uh, and then they started talking about snipers. And they were saying snipers, when they shoot someone, they get paid $100. So that night, I had nightmares. I was like, oh my gosh, how, who pays them $100? And I had this dream, vivid dream, that uh, you know, a sniper had gone on top of a building and shot my sister. And there was a banker, and they had uh, face mask and a banker was handing them a hundred dollars. It was, you know, so I decided I was very afraid for a long time, but I decided, you know what? I'm going to face my fear. 
I am going to, uh, you know, tell, I'm going to do something where I want to face the sniper. So at one point of time when we knew that the snipers were out, and you could hear the whizzing bullets, obviously, that's how you would know, uh, I decided to get out on the balcony. So I opened the door, and on my belly, I start crawling all the way until I got to the edge of the balcony. And then I peep my head up. I look for a few seconds, then I get back down. I'm like, okay, there are no snipers. Let me do it again. So I peep back up again and wait a little bit longer. There are no snipers. Golly, there are no snipers. So uh, finally, I said, you know what? This is it. Those people in the, in the war corner are not telling the truth. So I stood up, put my hands on my hips, and I said, there are no snipers. And Zing! The bullet, yes, right on top, on the balcony. Cement chips are in my hair. And I run right back in. I was very afraid. I hadn't told my parents that I was going to do this. And uh, so I, I ran right back, and, and I, um, you know, I hid, and, and I faced my fears. But um, as anyone would tell you, children that are growing up in war, you would replace one fear with another with another. But uh, this, uh, this background, uh, has helped me in the future when I worked with the FBI and I worked when I worked with the CIA. Especially as an example, when I arrived in Baghdad, uh, some people had a hard time with the you know bombings, and we got mortared a lot inside the green zone. And it was something that I grew up with, and it was familiar in my past. So um, you know, I sometimes I look back and say, you know, do I want to change the way I grew up, or do I want to change? Uh, my experiences, and I say no. I always try to take the positive out of an experience. So now I'll fast forward to uh, 1989. I was going to the American University of Beirut, and the university with the last round of bombing had shut down. My father had an arranged marriage plan for me, um, and my mom was engaged at the age of 13, married at the age of 14 to my dad, who's 20 years older than her, and had all four of us children by the age of um, 20. So, uh, you know, I did not want to follow in that footstep. So I decided that I wanted to apply. My sister had came to the States ahead of me, and I decided to apply, and she had helped me get the application, send me the application. I applied, and I was accepted as a, uh, on a student visa to come to the United States. And so I did. And um, there, there's a section in the book that talks about immigrants' life and what immigrants face and, and what they didn't know or what they do know. And you get all these advices from the, I moved to Dearborn, Michigan. There's a large Arab, uh, Arab American population. So you get all these advices from people who live there. And um, as an example, uh, because there are no uh, lines in Lebanon, you don't wait in line, it's just whoever can shove more, or there are no, uh, women could wait on one side, men could wait on the other. Some of the examples that they, um, you know, some of the examples that the uh, community would, advices of the community would give you say, when you go to the emergency room, claim you have heart disease, they take you right away, you cut in line, I'm telling you. So, you know, these are the types of, these are the types of things that you would hear from the immigrant community. And coming from a country with a corrupt government, with corrupt officials, you don't know, you just kind of follow through and you do what they tell you. So one of the stories that I have in the book about uh, immigrant uh, life was uh, the day that we decided we needed to buy a car. It was me, my roommate, and my sister. So we decided we needed a car. Actually, my roommate wanted the car. 
and one of the fears that we had with the anti-American propaganda in Lebanon, that Americans would not accept Arabs on the, uh, on the public transportation. So long story short, we decided we needed a car. We asked uh, around, where could we buy a car? What's the cheapest car that we can find? And somebody told us, oh, if you go to an auction, that's the best cars you, you can find. So following directions again, we went to an auction. And I remember my roommate saying, OK, this car was under $1,000. We're like, whoa, under $1,000. That's great. It was a Mustang GT with tinted windows. And we were like, you know, it looks like a fast car, but we didn't know, you know. They told us it drove, so we accepted it. And so, um, you know, we got the car, the car got there, and we opened up the doors, and it was gutted on the inside. It, there was nothing on the inside. And we're like, oh, gosh. So with our smart thinking, we stuck beach chairs inside the car and put some pillows behind it, and we drove it for some time like that. I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, when I look back at these things, you know, thank God the tinted windows help, you know, obscure what was inside the car. But then when I look back at these instances, um, I, uh, you know, I, I just wonder how we survived. And, um, you know, I always wish that the immigrants, when they come to the States, that they have uh, someone that they can turn to to give them good advice. But anyways, continuing on with the story. And um, after about a couple of semesters, I, uh, you know, my parents did not financially support me to come here, although by anybody's standards, my parents were very rich. And um, after coming to, uh, to the States, I was working as a waitress, and I was putting as many hours as I could. I shoveled snow. I did whatever I could to make ends meet. But I finally decided, you know, I finally realized that I just could not make ends meet. I could not pay for the uh, expensive foreign student tuition. And uh, you know, I cut down on all my expenses. When I worked as a waitress, as an example, the leftover food from customers' tables, I would take that and I would, I would eat that. I would, I would use that as my dinner or lunch. So I cut down on all my expenses. But even with that, I still couldn't afford um, to, get, you know, to pay for my tuition. So where did we go? Where did I go to ask for advice again? To the, to the Arab American population. So I started hearing different advices. I hear that if you sell drugs, you don't have to do drugs, but I hear if you sell drugs, you can make a lot of money. I'm like, no, I, you know, I, I don't want to do that. Then I, um, you know, then again, I hear. I hear if you work, you know, as a topless dancer in a bar, you make more money than if you would have worked, you know, as a waitress. No, I, I don't want to do that. And finally, someone said, well, I hear if you marry an American citizen, you, your tuition would be reduced because you would be considered a resident of the, uh, of the United States. And you know what I told myself when I heard that? You know, I just escaped an arranged marriage by my dad. You know, that's the last thing on my mind. That's the last thing I wanted to do. But things got progressively worse. And uh, I think the straw that broke the camel's back is when I got a package uh, a, some relatives of ours had come from Lebanon to Michigan. And I, we got a call, oh, your parents sent you a package. And you know, culturally, people send money to their children. They send you know, some form of support. And I said, bingo, my problems are solved. This is it. I can do this. Um, so I did 
you know, I, I drove to my to the relative's house, and we're there, and we're waiting, and I'm eyeballing the package, and I, you know, they want to ask you 100 questions. How are you? What's going on? And I, all I wanted to do is take that package and leave their house. And so I did. I take the package, and I leave, and I'm tearing into the package, and I open it up, and it was a list of things that my father wanted. The list was, I mean, it was vitamins, it was medicine, it even had contained a list for car parts. He wanted everything. Here's a person who, um, you know, had the money f to to support himself, and here I am. I'm hungry. I, I go. To, I went to sleep many nights hungry, and he wanted me to give him more stuff. And it didn't help that I got a call from my brother that my parents had sent him to Cyprus to a diploma mill. Uh, and he was bragging about having two motorcycles. He started a collection of watches. That his uh, weekly allowance from my parents was $500. That you know he he doesn't have to study because he bought the test from the teachers. He was parasailing, so that was it for me. So I'm like, yes, I am. You know, I'm ready. I'm gonna do this this uh, sham marriage. So a girlfriend who was in the same predicament as me had met a person, and she introduced me to that person's brother. And we said, well, great, you know, uh, you know, this is easy. Now, you know, this, I don't tell anybody to do this. You know, this is, like the judge stated in my case, this was an error in judgment. But I was desperate at the time, and I did not know other options that were available for me. For example, I could have applied for political asylum, and given the war in Lebanon, I would have you know, been accepted. I didn't think I would have any problems. Anyways, we engage in this sham marriage. The tuition gets dropped, uh, and my memory doesn't serve me. I think, if I can remember correctly, he had some parking tickets, or he had, he had some money issues. So I was going to help him with my waitress wages pay for his parking tickets or some, some, he needed money for something. And by marrying me, my tuition was going to be reduced. So I said, great, you know, I'm helping him, he's helping me, this is wonderful. I did not understand the gravity of my mistake at the time. Um, again, coming from a place where the government is corrupt, uh, you know, there are shortcuts in Lebanon, it's who you know and it's all of that. So my, I hadn't yet assimilated into our great nation's uh, values of democracy and freedom and all that. So that happened and, uh, you know, nothing came of it. It was, I think I saw him like three or four times total. Uh, you know, I helped him with the, his uh, money situation. Uh, and I believe his brother called like two or three times wanting money because he was in jail. I didn't know if he was in jail or not, but I gave him money regardless. That finished, uh, after that, I graduated from college and I moved on. But something had changed in me. I had fallen in love with the United States. And it's a, it's a strange, how do you describe falling in love with a country? And you, it's hard for me to describe it and, and say what it is. Uh, but coming from, uh, I've never had these ties, emotional ties, in uh, Lebanon for my country because I knew that leaders were corrupt and you know they did things for their own personal agenda, not for the citizens of Lebanon. So seeing the freedom, seeing the democracy, I could say whatever I wanted. I wasn't afraid that I was going to be kidnapped. A cousin of mine in Lebanon had said something negative about the Syrians, and they kidnapped him. And so I was free to say whatever I want. I was free to wear whatever I wanted. There was none of the uh, fears that I had in Lebanon. 
um, as a teenager, one time we went to the beach in Lebanon, and I was wearing a bikini. And I remember the screams, Hezbollah's coming to throw acid water on your bodies. And we're all rushing, running, where are they? Where are they? And, you know, so in here, in this great country, we don't have those fears. I can wear whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. And uh, we don't have these fears. So long story short, you know, I graduate from college, and after falling in love with the country, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to give back to the country that took me in, regardless of my race, of my origin, of my gender. I wanted to give back. And um, I see a lot of immigrants that come here, and I feel that sometimes they take, 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 but they don't give back. So I felt strongly about that. I had remarried. And my husband at the time was uh, a former Marine. I can't say ex-Marine. I have to say former Marine. For anybody, you would know. Anyways, um, so he had served. And he, uh, you know, I saw the importance of, serve, of serving. He's the re recipient of a Bronze Star. And I, that was, for me, I was very proud of that. So I applied to the FBI. And um, in my application, on the first page of the application, I list the sham marriage. But there's no box there where, that says, if it's sham, please cross this thing. So, and I remember having a discussion with my husband at the time, like, okay, you know, I just, I filled the application. What do I, how do, what do I, how do I address the sham marriage? And he said, well, just send it, uh, you know, send the application, call when they receive it, and talk to them about it. So I did just that. Um, I picked up the phone and I talked to the applicant coordinator and I said, I would like to discuss this, uh, you know, the marriage on page one. And I was abruptly, uh, she said, don't worry about it. I didn't have the chance. And I remember my husband at the time was walking like, what is she saying? I'm telling She said not to worry about it. So I said, okay, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. So after that um, application, I figured, you know what, there are you know, my, app, my background application took two years to, to be conducted. So I figured, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see them for an interview. I'm going to see them for this. There's going to be multiple occasions. And I had this in, in, my, in the back of my mind. I had this speech prepared. If anybody wanted to ask me about it, I had this speech prepared in my head to say, okay, I made a dumb mistake. You know, I didn't know any better. But, you know, you know I, I'm ready. I want to give back. And in those two years, the, not a single time did anybody bring it up. I had a polygraph examination. I had uh, an interview. I had multiple phone calls back and forth with the applicant coordinator. Nobody asked me. And I remember telling my husband again at the time, like, they're not asking me. And finally, he told me, listen, I've had a, a, a security clearance. The way this works is it's an adjudication process. The FBI and the CIA, they're not looking for a nun that has never made a mistake in her life or, or a priest. They're actually looking for normal people. So exactly, you know, and I reviewed the, the, uh, the requirements. And as an example, uh, it said if you had done, uh, uh, if you had smoked marijuana 15 times or less, you could still apply. You could still be accepted. I also reviewed the, it said, if you had taken serious drug three times or less, you can still be accepted. Uh, they're not looking at uh, someone's youthful mistake. Oh, you know what? I was in college, yes, and I smoked marijuana. I think some presidents have admitted to that. But, um, 
you know, they're not looking for that. So I remember, you know, okay, well, you know, if you, I came to the conclusion, my understanding was, okay, they told me don't worry about it. I had put it on the first page. If I w wanted to hide the marriage and not disclose it, why would I put it in the first page? And if you flip through the application, it was funny to see, like, date of birth, I don't know. Where does he work? I don't know. I, I mean, if this is not a red flag, I don't know what, having done background investigations myself, if this is not a red flag, I don't know what a red flag is. So process completed. I was, um, you know, asked to come to the FBI Academy, and I went through the Academy, and uh, I learned a lot about myself during the Academy, too, and uh, graduated from the Academy and was assigned to the Washington Field Office. I thought because of my accounting background, the person who suggested uh, for, uh, for me to apply for the FBI is my accounting professors when I was working uh, on my master's degree. I remember I was doing push-ups at the back of the classes, late classes, advanced accounting, and he came to me and was like, have you ever thought about working for the FBI? And when he told me that, I honestly did not know what the FBI did. All I knew, like, oh, they investigate the mafia or, or something like that. That was my impression. So anyways, I go through the FBI Academy, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to be working white-collar crime. I'm probably going to you know, be sitting behind the desk looking at people's books and accounting. But no, I was assigned to an international tourism squad, the squad that investigates crimes against U.S. citizens and U.S. interests overseas. And um, so I hit the ground running. Within two months after I got there, I, uh, I flew to Atlanta to interview Hani Sayer, who was later indicted in his role uh, for the Hobart Tower bombing. And then sometime in that December, that same year, um, I uh, went to, uh, to London to um, interview or talk to, to the service there about the 1998 kidnapping of, uh, of some U.S. Uh, citizens in Yemen. And, you know, my career just, it went skyrocketed. I believe the FBI just gave me more and I took more. And, uh, you know, with my problems, with my self-confidence to growing up with, to an abusive father, I just viewed the FBI as my family, the family that took me in. And when the, my supervisors would say, add a girl or good job or this, it really filled these holes. So I worked on a number of cases. And to mention a few, um, I worked on the uh, USS Cole investigation. I worked on the uh, on the 2003 bombing of Riyadh complexes. We just arrived there and had a number of interviews uh, of, of witnesses. Uh, the last case that I was assigned, oh, I, and I did three renditions for the FBI too. Uh, these things I can talk about because they are criminal cases, and uh, so uh, one of them that I detail a lot in the book is the Safarini rendition. And bringing the closure to families of the victims always made me feel better. Whether it's a kidnapping victim or whether it was a, a, the victim, families of the victim who've been murdered always made me feel better. I remember a cousin who was kidnapped in Lebanon and I remember the impact on the family. Seeing the mother grow old in front of your eyes and, and, and uh, just being depressed for the longest periods of time. So I felt, you know, I had, within me, I felt I had holes and I was filling them with, you know, my contributions of being able to look at somebody, the family of the victim and say, you know what, we have the guy who killed your brother or mother or father or whatever it may be. 
And uh, the last case that I was assigned, that I was the case agent for, is the, uh, the 2002 assassination of Lawrence Foley. I don't know if you guys remember USA diplomat who was murdered in, uh, in Amman, Jordan, uh, right in front of his house. It was a headline case on CNN um, all the time. So having worked on all of these cases, I finally got to the, you know, it exposed me, my work with the FBI exposed me to the CIA overseas. I always saw officers in the CIA. I worked with them because I had traveled, spent most of my time overseas. And one time, it was after the, the Foley murder case, I was talking to a, a CIA officer, and he told me, so um, you arrived to the crime after it has occurred. And I said, yeah. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't understanding what he was getting to. So, you know, after the crime occurred, you get there, yes, I know, you put the tape for the crime scene, you process crime scene, uh, bag and tag evidence, you do that. And I said, yeah, I do that. And uh, I d it didn't occur to me to what he was getting to until he said, well, you work on, that, on the investigative team. Why don't you want to join the preventive team? Why don't you want to join the people who can collect intelligence to prevent these attacks so that the investigative team does not have to get there? And that night, I remember being up all night. And, you know, although I had worked with the CIA, I didn't know their exact, uh, my role with them at the time was more of a, uh, you know, I'm an FBI investigator, and they are supporting the investigation that I was working with overseas. I didn't know what they did in their own offices, in their own cases, in their own missions. So that night, I'm thinking, wow, what do they do? How does the CIA operative work? What do they do? Do they throw them somewhere? Do they do this? Do they do that? All these th th thoughts are occurring in my mind. So I decided, you know what? I want to apply for the agency. And I, I also thought my linguistic and cultural skills were not as valued uh, by the FBI as they were as valued with the agency. Um, you know, I, you know, although I Although I, with the FBI, even if you work for uh, uh, overtime, you didn't get paid for the overtime. And although in any investigation I had a bigger workload than most agents because of my language, I did not get paid overtime. But I wasn't even doing this for the money uh, in a way. But I just did not see uh, FBI senior management putting the importance on language and cultural skills as I did see it in the agency. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna take those skills that I have, I'm gonna take the experience that I had, and I'm gonna use it at the agency. I applied, again, I listed the sham marriage, and um, as I later le learned, the FBI lost my parts of my personnel record, and the agency, yes, I did FOIA the FBI, uh, and I learned this information. They lost parts of my personnel record. The background investigation was not there, but what they told the agency was, yes, she's a special agency, yes, she holds security clearance, and the marriage never came up. So I get there, and I describe to you some of the uh, cases that I worked for the CIA when I was overseas. And all this came to an end when there was a family problems. My parents had moved and decided to stay in the United States. My brother uh, also moved with my parents, and he became an informant for the FBI. He was fighting and disliked my brother-in-law. My sister had married uh, 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 the owner of a, a successful uh, Lebanese restaurant chain in uh, Dearborn, Michigan. So they're all fighting. I wanted to stay as far from it as possible. 
I was undercover for the CIA. I did not feel like I wanted to bring myself into this uh, big mess with them. So I remember coming from the Middle East to, to uh, Dearborn, Michigan, where my parents were at the time, because I was ready to give birth to my daughter. So I remember my brother pulling me to the side and telling me, I have to tell you something. I have to tell you something. And he's had problems with telling the truth all his life. So I said, okay, what do you have to tell me? He's like, I am an informant for the FBI. I got, uh, I got arrested on some weapons violation, and I, you know, I've become an informant the FBI. They're forcing me to do this. I don't want to do this. They've asked me to report information on the brother-in-law, on Talal Shaheen. You know, I don't want to do this, but they're forcing me you know, to do this. And, you know, I put, the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, putting on my investigative hat on. So, I, so like, how many people have you told? Well, I've told uh, m my wife, and I've told um, this, and I've, you know, this was in 2004. And I'm like, how many people has he told, you know? Later on, my mom also tells me, your brother is working with very important people, and we're going to destroy the brother-in-law because my mother did not care for the brother-in-law. So, I'm, yeah, and I said, you know what? If, and he also told me that, the, that my brother-in-law was not reporting all his income. He had devised a scheme to take money, not report it. And mind you, my brother was the mastermind. He's the one who did the whole computer system um, for, for that scheme. So, um, you know, my mom tells me that, and I'm, my, my head is swirling. I just had a baby. I just wanted to get out of there, get out of the problems. And so I come back, and I'm back at the CIA headquarters, and I'm working, and I was you know, doing some work that I got kudos from the White House and um, getting ready for my next assignment. So I'm, here I am getting ready, and by nature, I'm a long-range planner, so I have all my stuff ready, tagged, bagged. This is how we're going to ship. This is how we're going to do this. When FBI agents, one of which is with us today, came to the um, came to CIA headquarters to question me, and so this is the first time that I actually got an inkling of really what was going on. Other than when I talked to my brother, although my brother called me one time and uh, on the phone, he's like, "Oh, the FBI just raided the Lashish restaurants, the restaurant business," and I told him, "Like, what do you expect? You know, you told them this information." You know, if he was evading taxes, they, you, they were going to act on it, rightfully so. So, and he pretended. He started talking some gibberish I, that I didn't understand. I was giving my daughter a bath when I was talking to him. But I later learned that this, this uh, conversation was being taped. So, FBI agents come to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I figured to myself, you know, I don't want to talk to them because the FBI in the past had... Uh, uh, revealed my identity to Al-Qaeda uh, in an unredacted document that was, I got a call on my desk at the FBI, said, get on, get on a secure phone. We want to tell you that we've revealed your identity to Al-Qaeda in the Zakaria Musawi case. But n I never learned what was the result of that. I don't know if Al-Qaeda knows who I am. I just, I, I don't know. 
And even after that, I was dispatched to a number of places uh, without knowing really what the threat against me was. And I didn't understand the threat until I moved to the, to the agency, the, the actual um, the danger behind that, until I moved to the agency. So I said, no, I don't want to talk to them. You know, I, the, the last thing I want to do is someone to write a report, put my name in, and then my name would be given to everybody, and then, you know, my identity would be compromised. Nonetheless, I said, okay, I'll just meet them in the cafeteria. You know, they came all the way from Michigan. I might as well just meet them in the cafeteria. Went to the cafeteria, sat down to have a meeting. There's all kinds of signs in CIA headquarters that says no classified discussions. So they were asking me questions that involved me talking about classified information. So I had to kind of maneuver the way that they were saying things. And the first thing they said was, uh, your brother-in-law, your sister, and your brother are going to go to jail for a very long time. And then I looked at them like, but, uh, you know, my brother is an FBI informant. Why would he go? And they were shocked. For someone who's done uh, investigative, for someone who's handled sources informants, uh, one of the things that you need to do before you do before you talk to any subject or any person or any witness is you need to talk to that source. You, you want to know who has compromised, who knows what, when, and why. So anyways, it did not go well. And they, they showed me a picture of, of my brother-in-law with a spiritual leader of Hezbollah. I didn't recognize it at the time. I don't keep track of spiritual leaders. And um, again, uh, you know, to me, this is bringing memories from my growing up in Lebanon. I remember, you know, uh, Lebanese that had come to the United States or Lebanese that have come from Australia or any other country. I remember they'd come back and they would donate money to charities and you would have this big dance and food and dances for these people. This is how I grew up. So apparently my brother-in-law had donated money to a, a charity. The charity was televised, uh, recorded, pictures, and everything. And uh, the person that they sent was the government sent, because you know most people probably are not aware that Hezbollah is part of the Lebanese government. So the government would send a representative. Or when I was younger, they would send mayors, or they would send uh, any kind of person. Anyways, so they, the person that they sent was a spiritual leader associated with Hezbollah. I didn't recognize the person. I told them I didn't recognize the person. They started asking me more. Uh, you know, I felt a little bit betrayed. Here I am. I've just come back from Baghdad. I've been shot at three times. I've put my life on the line. What's with badgering me? Where's this going? And they asked me, have you ever taken classified information out of the building? Well, there are rules and regulations I don't think they were aware of. Uh, pr prior to that week, I had briefed the national security advisor uh, to the president on a case. And uh, yes, I had taken classified information out of the building. But yes, I followed all the rules and regulations. There's bags and tags and uh, you know the transport of classified information. So yes, I have done that. But how do you state all this uh, to them when they're accusatory and they're in your face. So I ended up the interview. Well, this interview ends up, starts the investigation into me. So long story short, I was summoned. Uh, I did not know what was happening. And, uh, you know, my husband would say, listen, you've done more for this country than anybody I know. No one is going to shoot down a patriot. And I, you know, Having worked for the FBI, 
having worked at the Washington field office when the Stephen Hatfield anthrax case was going on, I remember talking to an agent there and says, we are going to put so much pressure on this guy, we're going to make his life a living hell until he admits that he's guilty. We now all know that he wasn't guilty and he had sued and settled for a large sum of money uh, with the FBI. Okay, so I, you know, my assignment was canceled and I figured, you know, I bet you it's my brother, he's, he's probably filled their mind with something, and I, I bet you, that, you know, this is what happened. I was, I couldn't wait to get face to face with these guys to tell, you know, to set the record straight. But when I got there, it was totally what I did not expect. They had some documents in their hand. Okay, we have these documents that you viewed, uh, and we don't know why you viewed. The first few documents, they gave me some information, I don't recall. Uh, you know, I recall some of the information. Yeah, yeah, you know, maybe this is, was this, this, you know, it had to do with this investigation, it had to do with that investigation. And one of the things that uh, I did as part of uh, my work at the Washington field office, the inter International Tourism Squad was right next to the Hezbollah squad. I've worked a number of Hezbollah cases myself. And then the, uh, the agents on that squad would come and ask me questions. Hey, Nada, can you pull this up? What is this about? Or, hey, Nara, can you help us on, on, on this case or that case, surveillance, this, that? And I always said yes. So um, at the end, when I explained some of the documents, instead of seeing relief on their faces, which is what I was expecting, I saw anger on their faces, like how, how, how dare she explain the documents? But I knew that day that I was, you know, no matter what I did, they never showed me the documents. I never looked at, I don't know what, to this date, I still don't know what is inside these documents. I don't know to what they're related for. And also as an investigator, you know, if you don't want to show her the documents, okay, what did she enter into the computer? You know, what name did she enter? What was she looking at? Uh, of course, that was not given to me. And I can't tell you how many times, you, you know, you enter these Arabic names and something else pops up. How long was that image on the screen? Uh, was that image, uh, you know, on the screen for two seconds or was it uh, there for 10 seconds? Because sometimes I would pull something, oh, that's not what I'm looking for, and I would get out of it. None of that was given to me. And I kept pushing. I, I told my attorneys, can you please ask them to find this out? Can you please? None of that. It turned out that the decision was made. I was going down regardless. I did not understand the reason behind the decision uh, at that time. But as, as time came, uh, as time, I mean, now, looking back at it, I do understand what was happening. Part of the investigation was based in racism. And I tell you that, I don't use the racism like, oh, you're, you know, you, you're being racist or anything like that. But one, the United States attorney looks at me and says, aren't all Shia and Detroit supporters of Hezbollah? This is like throwing a blanket. Aren't, you know, this, to me, this is racism, no matter how you look at it. So, and then I did not understand the political agenda behind it. The United States attorney had twice uh, applied or wanted to be appointed as a federal judge and failed. And in his, in, I think the reason he failed was he did not have enough national security credentials. So he wanted national security credentials, and I was his national security credentials. So with a, a slew of threats, two years that drained my financial resources, threat after threat, they devised a scheme where they said they're going to threaten me with a felony for every single time that I have used my U.S. passport. Mind you, 
I was going, I was using my U.S. passport to travel overseas and put my life on the line. That was uh, 100 felonies. I can't remember how many they said, but in the hundreds, felonies that, so you have this, you have that. And finally, the last threat, they told me, you know what, they're going to deport you to Lebanon, and they're going to announce, there was no way that the, the, them announcing, going to the media, uh, my identity. They were not going to protect my identity. So for anyone who's slightly familiar with how the system works, that meant a, a death threat. And although I wanted to fight, although I wanted to get the truth, but sometimes you make a decision as a mom. And as a mom, you know, I had already put the life of my daughter on the line several times. And as a mom, I had a lot of guilt feeling for that. So I said, all right, I will plead guilty. I pled guilty to two immigration charges relating to the sham marriage that the statute of limitation had long expired. And one misdemeanor count for an unauthorized use of the computers, FBI computer system, to a document that I don't know what it is to today's date. Okay, so this happens, and then the, the prosecutor's office started leaking information to the media, more and more information, and the media would pick up again. We had press standing on our door, filming into our house. We had people hounding my daughter. I was afraid for my daughter's life, dropping her off to school. Uh, I, I was very afraid uh, that someone's following us. You don't know what people, how people misunderstand or take this. I mean, after September 11, I remember someone, uh, someone murdering a Sikh because they thought he was Arab. So, you know, with ignorance, you really have to be scared. So I lived in a very rough time. And the FBI directed some of my friends not to talk to me. So the isolation method, they isolate me, put all the pressure on me so to plead guilty to something I did not do. Long story short, after this, for also, as anyone can tell you, uh, having learned this in my experience, anytime you're involved in a case with espionage or with uh, spying potential, the one thing that you do not leave out of a, a plea agreement is the ability for the FBI to interview the subject. We owe this to the informants that we, we ask to risk their life on our behalf. We owe this to figure out oper whether operations that cost billions of dollars have been compromised or not. And I kept telling the attorneys, I hope they do this, uh, this, uh, this debrief session. I hope they do this. I hope that the prosecutor said, uh, we don't think she's, she's really going to say anything. We really, uh, we're really not interested in doing that. I, was, I really wanted to sit down across from these people and say that, you know what, uh, you know, maybe I can explain it to them. If they give me enough information, I'm confident that I can explain it to them. Anyways, what, who stepped in in this role was the CIA. They did do the debriefing session uh, for a period of two weeks, concluded with multiple polygraph, and they issued a classified and an unclassified version of this. I have not seen the, uh, the classified version, but as the former chief of CTC uh, recounted on 60 Minutes, he who have seen it, he said it, it was, she was totally exonerated. In the unclassified version, it's part of the public record. The CIA states on record that we do not think that, uh, believe that she's associated with any terrorist organization or any terrorist themselves. So this happens, and you would think that this is it. Okay, you know, they've, They've gotten from me what they wanted, but it didn't stop. The harassment kept going on. 
they, uh, they uh, sent a, what's known now national security letter to my bank. It closed our accounts right before Christmas. Then uh, probably a month after that, I get this email that if you have your naturalization certificate with you, uh, it's a felony and we're going to arrest you and deport you. Uh, pressure point after pressure point. At that time, the immigration attorney had requested the, the, my uh, immigration file to review it. And the government itself, the immigration folks themselves, had sent me the naturalization certificate. So here I am thinking, wait, they send me the certificate, and they tell me it's a felony if you have it. Are they setting me up? What's going on? And it kept going on and on and on. And when this thing went down and the splash and the headlines in the media, one thing I did do, uh, I kept a list of all the media who contacted me. I did not want to call anyone back because I did want to give the benefit of the doubt for the people to correct you know, what was done wrong. Uh, and finally, I reached to 60 Minutes, and they conducted their investigation, and they, uh, you know, they learned a lot in their investigation as an example. Although an FBI agent was sent to Lebanon to do my background investigation, an FBI agent was not sent across the Detroit River to talk to the former spouse, personal interview, which is, again, as a background investigator, we used to say, here's where we're going to get all the goodies from a former spouse. That was, that, you know, that was not done. So... I reached to 60 Minutes. After I reached to 60 Minutes, I believe people have looked into the case, re-evaluated it, and I learned this past December that the Attorney General, the Director of the CIA, and the uh, Secretary for Homeland Security had signed a memo that granted me U.S. person status, also known as the green card. And I am currently applying for my U.S. citizenship. Now, I tell you all this, but I do want to say, you know, reflect in the end. I have worked next to uh, FBI agents of the highest moral character, of people who are good, honest people. I've worked with CIA officers also of the highest character. Uh, and I don't think that this minority, the bad apples, reflect on the organization at all. I don't hold any grudges against them. I don't hold any grudges about against what happened to me. I do believe that just I do believe in the justice system to today's date. I think justice does get served. It took a long time and a lot of pain, but I do believe that justice was served because if I was in Lebanon and if I was accused of this, I would be executed the next day. But I am standing in front of you today because I do believe in the justice system, and I do believe that this uh, story, uh, I'm a proof of the, our justice system. So this is how I feel. Thank you. Thank you very much for a, a wonderful talk. We've got uh, just a few minutes for questions right here. Do you have any kind of security clearance now? And also, throughout this event, did, were you thinking maybe I ought to flee to Canada and just get out of here and flee to Canada? Or was that prevented? Did they take your passport away from you or whatever? I do not have a security clearance. I am not a U.S. citizen, so I can't hold a security clearance. Uh, and, you know, there were times when I thought, you know what, maybe I should go to Lebanon and face these bad guys. And, but again, like, as I said, sometimes you have to make a decision based on family reasons. And I made the decision. And I'm glad that I made that decision. And there were some times when I doubted our justice system and I thought there was corruption and all of that. But, you know, I don't feel that way. And I feel, you know, I'm, I'm redeemed and I'm a proof of the justice system in, uh, that works. 
I guess I'm not clear as to the basis of the charges against you. Was it just because your brother-in-law was in trouble that then they questioned you? Yes. I think the, the, uh, the theory that they had in their mind, uh, because although he was not charged or indicted on terrorism charges, uh, that I was passing intelligence to the terrorist group Hezbollah through my brother-in-law. Last chance. Okay, let's thank Nada again, and she'll be at the back of the room signing books for those who are interested. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.